Any any questions or thoughts or anything? I actually had a question. Oh, you do, who does? You? Me, yeah. You do. Okay, yes. Okay, and this is probably a really stupid question because they usually are. I, I'm willing to believe that, yeah. Thank you. You're a good friend. Um, is there any significance to the flow of blood lasting 12 years and the daughter being 12 years old? Uh, something. I was talking to Daniel about this, and it's, you know, you don't want to start getting into numerology, and, you know, it's the number of the apostles, and it's the number of the tribes of Israel... But but I think there is something to the fact that um, these two women, this girl growing up in the home of the synagogue ruler, a pillar in the community, and this woman to be ostracized are intertwined. And for as long as this girl's been alive, this woman's been afflicted, and God cares for them both. Jairus cares for his daughter. Jesus cares for this daughter. And that their fates are intertwined. In one day, in one encounter, Jesus will heal both of them. And so there is this sort of intertwining of their lives in a sense that we're least supposed to see that there's commensurate as long as this girl's been alive this woman's been afflicted and as much as Jairus might be tempted to think this woman's a distraction no there Jesus intends to restore and heal them both but beyond that I don't know but some, something along those lines um, no, no it's, it's certainly intriguing you know that 12 and 12 um, we just got told earlier that the man with the demon had just had the demon for a long time we didn't know how long but Luke tells us 12, and he tells us 12. But, yeah. Um, good observation. Anything else? Jonah, wait for the mic. <clears throat> I, I noticed in way back uh, in the last sermon, uh, in 39, uh, Jesus said, Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. He's speaking to the man that he healed with all the demons. Mm -hmm. And then he says to Jairus to tell no one. Yes. Why? That's, that's another good observation. Yeah, there, some miracles Jesus does clearly are done to create attention, are clearly done in Luke's highlighting how the word spreads and the word spreads and the word spreads and the word spreads and the word spreads. There are other miracles Jesus does that are not done for that purpose. Now, we don't know how he distinguishes the two. Like, obviously, he has a purpose and a reason um, but but it's clear some of Jesus' miracles are done primarily relationally and out of compassion and not. Let me show you in John's gospel where it becomes clearer. But go to John chapter 2. Um, this concept is, is easier to see in John. I mean, it's still there to be seen in Luke, but I think I can show it to you more clearly at the wedding at Cana. Um, so John chapter 2, verse 1. On the third day, there's a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to his servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now that reference to his hour, if you read through John, is the crucifixion. So as you're reading through John, his hour had not yet come, his hour had not yet come. Then in chapter 12, all of a sudden... His hour has come, and then the night before he dies on the cross, I just got to keep, keep your thumb here, I'll just read it to you. In John 17, Jesus' high priestly prayer, he begins, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. So the hour is the cross. And so Jesus says, in effect, it's not time for me to die on the cross. Why are you bringing this to me? And when you 
try to work through that. That's, by the way, the exact same answer he gives to his brothers in John 7 when they tell him, look, no one who does works and miracles does them secretly. Go up openly. It's the Feast of Booths. Go up to Jerusalem, Jesus. And Jesus says, you know, my time, my hour has not yet come. It is always your hour. Go up yourself. I'm not going up. And in both instances, with family members encouraging him to do a public work, Jesus goes up and does it privately. So he does go up to Jerusalem, but he does it secretly. And here, he does work the miracle, but what we're told is he does it in a way that does not bring attention to himself. Only the servants know. So if you keep reading, um, verse 6 now, there were six stone jars of water for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding about 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. They filled them to the brim, and he said to them, now draw out and take it out to the master of the feast. So they took it, and the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who drew it knew. So who are the only people aware of this miracle? The servants, and we're going to see at the end of the passage, Jesus' disciples. Um, if you jump down to verse 11, this, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Canaan Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. So Jesus' response to Mary is, it's not the time for me to be crucified yet. And the logic is this. Jesus' miracles are what speed him to the cross, because ultimately, in, in John 11, when he raises Lazarus, that's when the Pharisees hear about that. They say, if this man goes on like this, all people will go after him, and the Romans will come and take away our position. In other words, a guy who's a rebel rouser, a guy who's, who's teaching you don't like, isn't a problem while he lacks credibility. But the more miracles Jesus does, the harder it is to say he's a kook and a crackpot. Eventually, they're going to just go to, okay, yes, yes, he does miracles, but he does them by Satan. That's eventually where they're going to go to. And so the more miracles Jesus does, the more it's going to force the Pharisees, okay, this guy's got to just die. He's got to stop. And so the, the raising of Lazarus in John's gospel signals the pivot point where literally they just sort of put a hit out on him. They determined to put him to death, it says, after after John, John 11. And so the miracles are what move him that way. And so in John's gospel, and twice he says, it's not my hour yet, the logic is something like, I've got to control how quickly and to what extent the word gets out. This is part of the reason why Jesus t- t- um, doesn't want it to get out. He's the Messiah. He'll tell people, like he tells okay, don't tell people that though. He's got to control the pace and the speed at which his word gets out and which he reveals himself. And so there are times where he does very public miracles. And there are other times where he doesn't. And so this one is meant to not get the word out. This, that's why I'm saying it's primarily just seen as an act of compassion. This is not about Hey, everybody, I'm the Messiah. Hey, everybody, come follow me. He did do a raising of the dead publicly for that purpose. This one isn't. This one's just about feeling compassion for Jairus and feeling compassion for this woman with, with the flow of blood. Does that make sense? It's a long-winded answer, I'm sorry. But um, they pay me to talk, so it's really... you gotta, you got you to be somewhat understanding, right? Okay. What? What? Nothing. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay, other questions, thoughts? JP. Can you unpack um, what it means when Jesus kind of accidentally healed through the Spirit and what that, what insight that gives us into the relationship between His incarnation and the Trinity? (laughs) 
Yes, we can try. We'll see what we do here. Okay, so I argued, and because I think the way Luke's presented Jesus in this gospel, the power that Jesus is doing for miracles, and specifically for healing, is the power of God, and that that power of God is the power of God ministered through the Holy Spirit. So you put together uh, in Luke chapter 4, um, verse, um, the introduction to his Galilean ministry, verse 14, Jesus returned in the power of the Holy Spirit. So that's before Jesus does any miracles in Luke's gospel, he's said to be in the power of the Spirit. And so Luke wants us to understand that the miracles he does are the demonstration of the power of the Spirit. And then in chapter 5, he gives another statement in 17, the end of the sentence, the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And then he heals the paralytic. And so again, to understand that Jesus is not healing in his own power. He's healing in the power that has come upon him through the Holy Spirit at his baptism. Okay? Um, and I use the illustration. I'll use it again. Um, we bought a Toyota Sienna, and we bought it um, for, with very low miles and a lady. Anyway. We ended up getting one with all the bells and whistles. I, I usually don't care about the bells and whistles, but it's nice. But we bought it because it had low miles, and it was a good price. But I got the, the deluxe version of, let's just say I got the deluxe version. And let's just say you have the economy version of the same car. Imagine further that I had a switch that could turn off all my bonus features, turn off the, the heated seats, turn off the power steering, turn off the whatever. Would I not be able to say, I have made driving my van identical to driving your van? It's the same experience. And yet my van never stops being the, the deluxe version, right? So Jesus, in entering into humanity, um, set, here's how theologians say it. He set aside the independent use of his divine attributes. He doesn't lose the divine attributes. He just doesn't use them. So Jesus, while possessing omniscience, is not functionally omniscient. He isn't walking around knowing everything. We've seen him learn. And so, while Jesus possessing all power and authority isn't utilizing that power and authority, the power he's utilizing is the power of the Spirit upon him. And Luke's shown us that. So Luke wants us to understand he's coming in the power of the Spirit, and the power of God is with him to heal. So when he heals, it's that power at work, which I think helps explain why this woman gets healed. Because if you conclude this is Jesus' innate power then you end up with something that's very close to like shamanism or animism or magic. Because what you have to conclude is Jesus, without intending to heal, just because it's kind of leaking out of him, heals somebody. And you get something like a rabbit's foot. If you can just touch it, you can just rub it, you can just you know get up like a relic or something. You touch his garment and zap. If it's the power of God the Father then God the Father can see this woman's faith. He's functionally on mission. He's aware of what's going on. And he can say, sure, I'll respond to that woman's faith by healing her. And it stops being superstitious. And it stops being um, about like you know, magic cloaks. So I, I think it works better in that sense if we understand it, that this is God's, the power of the Lord, his Father, given to him. And that the Father, in his prerogative, seeing the woman in her faith, causes her to be healed, rather than Jesus has magic clothes or Jesus is magic. And if somehow like Jesus is asleep and you come and just touch him, you get healed, you know? Um, so that, that would be my understanding that the power that he's aware of departing from him is the same power referenced in five and four, the spirit of God. And that therefore God who is omniscient is intentionally causing her to be healed in response to her faith. Jesus then not, and I think he doesn't know who touched him. I don't think this is theater. There's some people want to argue it's theater. Um, but even the fact that the pronoun he uses is masculine, right? He, 
there's nothing to evidence he's aware that it's a woman who's touched him. And granted, you would use a masculine pronoun for either woman or, or but if he'd used a feminine pronoun, it'd be clear he knew who touched him, right? He doesn't. Um, but he does know the power's gone out of him. He knows something's happened. And so he then stops the show. <laughs> Dominion. Okay. Um, does that, you want, does, do you want to go further with your question, or is that rambling enough for you? So what does that speak to kind of Christ's human will versus his divine will? I, I don't I know mean, if there's any distinction between okay. the wills. I'm talking about information. Jesus has voluntarily limited himself to, to, to be able to grow in wisdom. I mean, that's the language of Luke 2. He grew in wisdom and stature and favor with God. He's growing in wisdom. One who is omniscient has voluntarily chosen to forego the experience of omniscience. Trying to choose my words carefully. He's not losing omniscience. He's just not experiencing omniscience. You either have to have the, the baby comes out. I mean, and there are medieval stories like this. You can see like paintings of like Jesus suckling at his mother while teaching people with his hands. I'm not even kidding. Like he's just comes out of the womb. He's talking. He's teaching. He's the omniscient Messiah. The, the problem is that's not the picture Luke paints. He, Luke paints a Jesus growing in wisdom and knowledge. Go to Hebrews chapter two. Um, verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through the fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. Now, certainly there are some respects he doesn't become like us. He doesn't sin. But he takes on sin on the cross. But my default assumption based on passages like that is that if it's possible for Jesus' to, incarnation to be like me, it is. In every possible way that Jesus could become like me, given the constraints that he doesn't stop being God, he does. And apparently one of those ways is he can learn. And so it's not an issue of will. It's the issue of the information he has. Now, Luke tells us he does have some extra information. He knows power's gone out of him. He knows that. By implication, by what Luke doesn't add, he doesn't know, and by what Jesus says, he doesn't know who touched him. No problem with divine It's just the information he's working with. He doesn't know who touched him. Um, and so, like, for instance, in, in 9, he's going to go up on the Mount of Transfiguration, and he's going to talk with Moses and Elijah, and the Greek says about the exodus, which he was soon to accomplish in Jerusalem, and they mean the cross, the resurrection. And Jesus comes down from the Mount of Transfiguration with a clarity and a focus on the cross that he didn't have before. I think part of what we can conclude is he's given some extra information from Moses and Elijah that adds to what he knows from the Bible, and now he's got some greater clarity and understanding. There's no errors. Jesus never, Jesus learns without ever correcting a wrong belief. In other words, we learn because I believe something and then I'm like, oh, that was stupid. I didn't know that. You know, Jesus doesn't learn that way. Jesus doesn't get corrected. But Jesus wisely is working through things. And, you know, I'd imagine, you know, what do you think about da 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 da? I don't know, but I've thought about it. I, I don't have enough information to come to a conclusion. 
You know what I mean? And so Jesus is learning and thinking and growing in wisdom. And he gets up on the Mount of Transfiguration. And, and whatever Moses and Elijah are saying, he comes down with a focus. And with a, that's when he sets, resolutely set his forehead or face towards Jerusalem. And then the rest of Luke's gospel, on the way to Jerusalem, on there, it's just we're going to the cross. You come out of nine, headed to the cross. Just that's, that's Luke's gospel. And again, it's just more information. So I don't think it's an issue of two wills. It's just how much information he has at that point. That makes sense. Dan Barth wants to chime in. Um, Could it also be that, you know, you mentioned in, in your sermon this morning that it wasn't theater. Could it also be a, a chance for Jesus in a crowd of people that, and we don't, the text doesn't tell us whether he knows or doesn't know. Could it also be a, a, an analogy where it's like, we have all these people that deny it until the one steps forward and says, it was me, I'm sorry, I'm guilty, fall at my feet. Oh, no, I, th I think it does accomplish that. But some people I've read have suggested Jesus knows perfectly well who touched him. He just wants to bring this to a head and force this woman's hand and make her fall. He does do that. I just think that the text and the way Luke presents it, telling us what he does know, but doesn't... Luke could have easily said when it said he knew that power had gone out of him for he knew the woman touched her. And the grammar could easily make it clear he knows who it is by making it a feminine pronoun. Who, feminine, touched me. All the grammar is the other way. I take it straight up at face value. He doesn't know who touched him. Um, and absolutely, he accomplishes what you're saying. I mean, that that's becomes her test of faith. Will you overcome your fear, the fear of this crowd, the fear of the scorn you might get, and come forward and acknowledge what you did? If you had the faith to touch him, will you own up to that faith and confess it? I mean, and that's where even the language of the thorns comes in. Luke, the only two times in Luke's, in Luke Acts that that verb for to choke occurs is in the parable of the sower and here. And so I think there's supposed to be some overtones, a crowd that can choke out. And what's she afraid of? The crowd. And what does she do? She tells not just Jesus, like whispering, she tells the whole crowd. And not just what she did, but why, which means she's confessing her uncleanness. And so she totally overcomes it. She, she nails it. You know, she, and then Jesus, I mean, calls her daughter, announces the forgiveness of her sins and tells her to go in peace and publicly restores her, you know? Um, so that's all taking place. Absolutely. But I definitely, I don't see anything from the text and I don't see any theological problem with saying Jesus doesn't know who touched him because we, he's, if he's growing in wisdom in chapter two, how is it a problem then if we can accept that? He doesn't know who touched him here. So, um, anyone? No, run further. The understanding the incarnation is not surprisingly complicated. Uh, God becoming man should be challenging. It should be puzzling. It shouldn't just be like, oh, yeah, well, I get it. Cool. So, Linda. Okay, so obviously word had to get to her. If she was unclean and outside of the community... Yes. Word had to get to her yes. that he was coming or mm -hmm. there. Mm -hmm. Could he also have declared that because if the crowd was pressing in on him, other people probably touched her, yep. which would have made them unclean yeah. by their law. So yeah. in publicly declaring her healed, then they wouldn't have to worry about... Yeah. being unclean yeah. along with her no, that was, or from touching her. Honestly, that was an issue I was wrestling with earlier this week. It's like, along with this woman's faith, is she sinning by putting all these people to exposure? I mean, she's, in some sense, disregarding the law. 
Um, like, you know, how do you deal with that? Like, do you just say, well, as long as you have faith, it doesn't matter what you do. You don't want to become that, you know. Just do whatever you want as long as you have faith, you know. Um, no, I think that in the same way that Jesus argued when, he, when we looked at um, healing on the Sabbath, that there are exceptions, priority exceptions, like David's need for food. This woman becomes convinced God's Messiah and Son is here. I need to get to him. And yes, the law says, I need to get to him. And so far in Luke's gospel, the faith that has the paralytic's friends digging a hole through the roof, I got to get to him, is So I would think that, that this is one of those cases where, no, this is a special situation. God's Messiah is here. There's a whole crowd. They're waiting for him. They're waiting for him. They're waiting for him, which gives time for her to get word. Hey, we saw him get on a boat, head over to Gentile country. Hey, we think we see the boat coming back, you know, and she can get in there and get, get ready gets in, and she comes up behind. I mean, it's clear she doesn't want this encounter. Everyone else wants to talk to Jesus. She doesn't want to talk to Jesus. She just wants to touch Jesus. And then she's initially content with that. And when the first round of questionings denies it with everyone else. And Jesus, you're right, in, 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 in clarifying this, finishes the matter and resolves the issue of, is everyone else who's touched her unclean? No, they're fine too. Yes. Am I just... Does that deal with what you're getting at? And or am I... he also didn't send her to the priest either, no. like he had some of the others. Yeah. To tell her to go there and have him. Yeah, if you go to Leviticus, the passage right in Leviticus, for seven more days she would be unclean. Except not when she encounters Jesus. She's not. But yeah, if you, go, if you look in the notes, Leviticus, what is it, 15? Um, if you read that, when a woman has a, a, a either not in her normal cycle or particularly long, the entire length of the, of the blood is unclean, plus seven days. And yet Jesus doesn't do that. Go in peace, daughter. Your faith has made you well. Um, so yeah, something powerful has happened. Yes. Insightful, Linda. Insightful. It is. Other questions or thoughts or anything? Jeremy Sweet. This is less insightful, but... <clears throat> we woo. Yeah, sorry. I noticed that when you were talking about... Uh, you, you said some people call this Jesus' long day or, or whatever it is you said exactly, but um, are you on board with this all being a single day? I, I, it seems to me I'm, I'm okay with it being an unbroken chain of events, mm -hmm. but... The amount of time that appears to have happened on the I, on the across the water, yeah, it doesn't seem like there's enough time to do all the things that happen. When, when, when I say day, sure. When you try to harmonize the gospels, because even the Luke starts with one day. I think if you go to Matthew and Mark, there are antecedent events that that you can even track pieces together in a longer chain of events. So Luke, for his purposes, just wants to start with one day they got in a boat. But I think in either Matthew or Mark, uh, there are events that occur before that, which explain why Jesus is so tired that he falls asleep. So it's, it's entirely possible they do a night crossing on the Sea of Galilee, and Jesus takes a little nap. So when you say the long day, from his experience, aside from the little nap in the boat, he's been up the whole time. So you can refer to, it's been a long day. When you, how, how long have you been up since yesterday? I mean, that, so I don't mean a day like 24 hours or one period of daylight, rather one period of no rest, no sleep, no significant sleep, a long day. It just seems like the, the stuff he was doing with the demoniac and casting the, casting the demons out, and 
it took a fair amount of time for the word to spread yeah. from the people who witnessed yeah. it to go back to wherever their town yeah. was and then for the townspeople to come out to witness him speaking and, and all that i mean mm-hmm. it, it's not like they hopped in the you know the subaru and the, the drove subaru. off yeah, yeah right 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 i mean it just, that all the disciples were all in one accord ah <laughs> okay okay oh come on i don't on. think it's seats 12 <laughs> The plot thins. The plot. The plot thins. Yes. I, we can't even fit in an accord. Uh, what was the first motorcycle in the Bible? David's triumph was heard throughout the land. Okay. Uh, no. So it's just it's more of a long, unbroken chain of events that makes for a long day. Let me, let me just show you one other example. Of what I mean? Go to go to Luke nine, when Jesus comes down from the Mount of Transfiguration. He gets more people coming up. Please, please help. Come, please help. And he starts to let it be known that this isn't easy. There's a sense in which, there's a very real sense in which as much as Jesus loves us and Jesus... Is this dying out again? Weird. Okay. And as much as, as, much as he loves us and he's compassionate, we're, we're kind of hard to deal with. And, and we're kind of a pain. And there's a couple spots where Jesus will admit as much. Like, you know, you people really are difficult and unpleasant at times. And, you know, honestly, there are times I really just want to be back with my Father in heaven. And be, yeah. So he comes down from Mount Transfiguration, right? In verse th- chapter 9, verse 37, on the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, and there's, oh, look, there's that great crowd. Um, and behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you, look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and chatters, shatters him and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Jesus answered, Oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Which is to say, you guys really are a pain at times. And... I'm just saying he doesn't do that back in eight when he was a long day. I'm just trying to highlight his compassion and long suffering. He's been up for a long time. There's this pressing crowd. There's this, this, this tumult of people. And he's, Luke doesn't even have to say Jesus agreed to go. It's kind of assumed. On his way. I just love that. So, so, so we got to recognize this, this is hard for Jesus. This is difficult for Jesus. He gets tired and he gets exhausted. And he, you know, again, we can so think of Jesus. I'm trying to think of what McDougal used to say, my, my professor. We deify the humanity of Jesus and we humanify the deity of Jesus. Meaning we, 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 we take all the scary tremble of fear deity stuff. And we're like, no, Jesus, high five. And then whenever we're supposed to see his humanity, we think, oh, no, it's easy. He's God. So he stayed up for two days straight, prayed all night. That's easy. He's God. No, he's tired enough to be asleep in a boat, you know? And so, so this, is, this, is, this is hard work. And in chapter 9, he's going to make it clear it's not always pleasant, you know? Um, and yet he goes, and yet he cares for Jairus's daughter. Um, that's and he cares for this woman too. You know, he, that that's kind of part of the point. Yep. Any other thing else? We got ten minutes here. I got more jokes, but <laughs> you would think that this uh, this event that the the woman just came up and touched him would cause a, a chain of events that people would think, well, he's some he's got something magic that all I gotta do is come up and touch this guy. You'd think that it would just inundate him with people that 
just want to do that, not because they believe, right? But superstitious, oh, yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. And and the crowds get in Luke. The crowds get so bad that it starts talking about people getting trampled. That that's the frenzy. This does pick up to. I mean, Luke is escalating the frenzy of the crowds, and this is the first time the crowds are now pressing, pressing in and choking and. Yeah, and, and when word gets out of what happened, sure, it's going to crank it up a whole nother, it's going to go to 11, you know? Um, anyone? This one, this one goes to 11? You, yeah, okay, thank you. Okay. Um, no, I, no, absolutely. You can only imagine how people just be running up and like, you know, running away and just putting up with all sorts of, right? Um, no, I mean, we don't know of that happening. We just know the crowds get bigger and bigger and tighter and tighter and people are getting trampled. Um, that's where this is headed in regards to the trajectory of the crowds. Well, obviously, Jesus didn't heal all those people that pressed in on him. So no. in this case, the Holy Spirit chose yeah. to heal this woman outside of Jesus' knowledge. Yeah. So it's that's not what it was, but it would look that way from the outsider's perspective. And, and, well, and part of it is even as Jesus presses the encounter, he makes it clear it's not her touch, but her faith. Your faith has made you well. Not touching me made you well. Your faith made you well. Now, her faith drove her to touch him. <laughs> but, but it makes the point, if you just touch me without faith, no healing. So even in Luke's telling of this, he wants to make it clear Jesus isn't a walking rabbit's foot. You know, he, he, he's not, he's not, he's not, that's not what he, who he is. She needs faith. Microphone, we got the chairman of the elders. <laughs> Give the man a mic. There may also been some of those that did touch him that did have faith and were healed, but as we know, Luke doesn't record everything that right. happened. So, I mean, there's a lot of things that always get filled in, you know, filled in somewhere yeah. that we wonder about or don't get filled in. Mm. Um, so, you know, they, yeah, it's, it's those things are always interesting things to think about. The reality is we're not sure. Um, were there those that touched him and were healed? And, and Luke just records this one. Right. Or were there those that obviously, because they did not have faith, were not healed? So I, right. I don't know. Right. And, and Jesus, Jesus heals lots of people, but he does not heal everybody in the land of Israel. He, that's the other point I'm trying to make from Luke is he doesn't first and foremost identify himself as a healer. He identifies himself first and foremost as a preacher. And the miracles validate his message they give credence to his message. They um, are the basis in part for the authority for the claims he makes. But he's not first and foremost a healer. He's first and foremost a, a, a prophet speaking. The Spirit of the Lord has anointed me to proclaim, to announce, to preach. Um, and the miracles serve as confirmation of that. And loving gifts, as it were, you know, the, the healing of Jairus' daughters is an act of love and compassion. The healing of the, the widow's son is an act of love and compassion. But Jesus could have said, let all people everywhere be healed. Could he not? That wasn't his mission. Um, that wasn't his mission. Greg, Mike, Mike, oh, he's got the mic. Okay. I was just going to say, uh, sort of in response to Al or in adding to what Al was saying, was that Oftentimes we want to speculate on the things that aren't said in Scripture. Right. We want to we want to spend our time thinking about. Well, I wonder if this was true. Right. Uh, we need to remember that the writers were giving us what's the what's important. Right. Uh, so if we've if we've already figured out all of the stuff that we know is important, 
then we maybe should spend <laughs> yes. time speculating yes. on what wasn't said. Yeah, go, go to John 20. Let me back that up, John 20. And, and you may have noticed as we're teaching through Luke, I'm not doing a ton of harmonization with the other Gospels. And the reason why is um, each author is selecting their material. There's no conflict between the Gospels, but they're selecting their material. I, I like to think of it, especially when you deal with narrative, like a screenplay. Where's the camera slowing down? Where are you getting a wide-angle shot? Where are we getting 2,000 feet up? Where are we zooming in close? But John, Luke said something similar in his opening. It seemed good to me to put a well-ordered account. So he's saying there's ordering, there's intentionality. But look at what John says in John 20, verse 30. Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe. So John's saying, I handpicked my material. There's tons of stuff I could have said. Elsewhere, he says that the world would not be big enough to... Con- Where is that? It's, is that in 21? Where- right, wait, where is that? Is that in 20? 20- yes, the last verse of 21. Now, there are many other things that Jesus did were every one of them to be written. I suppose the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. So John is saying, I have a, an inexhaustible amount of source material, but I've chosen... 21 chapters of material, and I've chosen it so that you might believe. And so there's a mind and a reason and a logic to why this was included, not that, why this was included, not that. And Luke, if you go back to Luke 1, has the same type of statement of purpose. This isn't just thrown together hodgepodge. This is, inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me, also having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you've been taught. This is an ordered account. So any reading of Luke that just says, oh, Luke doesn't know what he's doing, he just decided to throw this other thing in, this is an orderly account. And it's an orderly account designed to reinforce, to give certainty to teaching Theophilus already had. So that's what I'm assuming is going on with Luke. And so if you're like, why didn't Luke tell us this? Well, it wasn't part of his orderly account, or this wasn't one of those things he needed to give us certainty about. Okay, cool. You know, and that's what you got to assume. And that's why I want to study Luke and not just harmonize Matthew, Mark, and Luke, because that'll help you sometimes get a better understanding of the event. But you lose, why is the author highlighting this and not that? Why is the author highlighting this and Wendell? And then, get the, get, no, 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 he, you, you got to play by the rules. Come on, guys. I haven't learned the rules yet, but uh, somebody once said they're made to be broken. Um, I, I, think that's a very, <laughs> I think that's a very important thing that you brought up. Uh, I recently had a discussion about faith healing with an individual, and uh, one of the things people like to do is compare, well, Jesus didn't heal everybody as well, you know, and because I brought up, well, why don't they go to the hospital if they're really faith healer? I think it's very, very important, the things that you just mentioned, to the reason why these God-appointed authors uh, wrote what they did, because like in the first verse, it's very easy to skip over that. You know, it's just, well, I want to get to the heart of the message. But uh, I, I appreciate the point you brought up about the reasoning uh, that God put this in his scripture. Uh, you know, why these authors wrote what they did 
to explain that. So, well, know. and there's a flip side to that too. If you ever come across something in the Bible that seems pointless, you're wrong, right? No, no. So that no, there'll be times where I'm like, why did I get given this detail? No, that, that very same question that Alyssa asked earlier. Why at twelve? And I'm thinking, we just got told the demoniac had the demon for a long time. Luke told us the number here. Now maybe it's because Luke didn't know. He hadn't done the research. He couldn't find the because he said he did research. And maybe these women are known in the twelve and the twelve. But whenever God tells you something in His Word, and you know He could have told you twenty other things. He could have told you the conversation they had in the boat on the way back. He didn't. So apparently, Luke, that's not an important point, you know? Um, so when he does tell you something, I want to know why. This, this, I'll leave, close with this. Here's a Bible, Jeremy's Bible study tip number 12. Um, this means something, 12. Um, no. Um, you ever watch the TV show Jeopardy? Where you, you get the answer and you try to come up with a question. The more I read my Bible, the more I play Jeopardy with the Bible. What questions should I be asking that this piece of information answers? God assumes all Scripture is profitable for teaching, for rebuke, for correction, for training in righteousness. This is valuable. This is important. And if it seems unimportant to me, I'm clearly not asking the right question. What questions should I be asking that this piece of truth answers and addresses? Right? That's, that's what I mean by playing Jeopardy with the Bible. So when you come across a piece of information or detail, why are the... Why on earth did he tell us that? That's a great question. Chew on it some. Like, why do we get told this and not that? Um, I'll give you one example of that and we'll, we'll, we'll break. So you go to Genesis 1 and we read that man is made in God's own image and his own image did he make them. And everyone wonders, what on earth does it mean to be made in God's image? The next time that gets picked up clearly is in Genesis 9 when after the flood, God gives to Noah the the principle of lex talionis, the, the, I've, that if, you're, if a man takes human life by murder, then by men their blood will be shed. And this becomes understood as the foundation of human government and the foundation of this, the government bearing the sword. That God has authorized um, man to, to take the life of murderers. What's the rationale? Because they made the image of God. So as much as I might be interested in knowing, can you, could you spell out with more clarity exactly what it means that I bear God's image? The Bible doesn't go in that direction. The, the next time the Bible develops being made in God's image, it takes on not the what, but the so what. What are the implications? Well, the implication is man's life is valuable and has dignity. And you kill murderers because they dared to kill people made in God's image. So... I want, I have all these questions. Why didn't you tell me more of what it meant that we're made in God's image? I want, you know, people write all these books and they get, and it's an interesting discussion. The direction the Bible moves is the so what, which is where James picks it up next. Brothers, we bless God with our tongue and curse people made in his own image. So I want to take my cues from the text where I'm going and again, play more jeopardy with the text. And if I find that the Bible isn't addressing a question I have, maybe it's a question I don't need to be so worried about. In other words, maybe I need to be less worried about specifically nailing down what it means that I made in God's image and actually start loving and treating people with respect and dignity because they're made in God's image. Maybe it's good enough to know in some real, tangible and significant way, you image God and the people around you image God. So why don't you treat them with honor and dignity? But I want to know what it means. Why don't you just go start treating with honor and dignity? We'll start there. You know, I mean, so that's giving me some clue of like what way I should move. And so, yeah, there's, there's details in the text Al was saying we don't have that would be fascinating. How many other people touched him? How many other people were healed? We don't know. 
But these things have been given to us that we can become certain and that we might know with certainty these things happen. Okay, so God's given us what I need to know and better get, what was it Greg said? Why don't you start dealing with the stuff you do know before you start agonizing over the things you don't know? Was that what you said, Greg? More or less. Okay. On that note, we'll take a break. And, well, not, we'll not take a break. We'll take a week-long break. Um, and, and we'll see you all next week. God bless.